0: It's time for a Friday Light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, October 30th, 2009, the day before the official Reformation Day. A celebration of the kickoff of the Protestant Reformation. Restoration of the good news of Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone. By Christ's work alone. Ah, oh, I've been. Thank God for freedom from the bondage of a works-based religion such as Roman Catholicism, or even Purpose Drivenism. (laughs) Sorry. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrough, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically to get you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And if you are any kind of a listener, if you listen for any amount of time, you'll understand we have a huge axe that we like to grind here at Fighting for the Faith. And that axe is this, Christ and Him crucified for your sins. And calling everybody everywhere to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, there is no better good news that we could possibly be, well, proclaiming. And so that, that's our big axe. I, you know, I say that from time to time just because it's important that you understand that that's really kind of the thing that we're doing here. The discernment, it's all discernment that leads back to the cross, that leads back to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Because there's a lot of people out there making all kinds of bizarre claims about God. And over and again, you find that those bizarre claims that they're just making up it, create a works based religion. And yeah, you cannot please God in your own righteousness. You haven't got a snowball's chance in Hades of doing that. And so uh, we, we want to let you know about the good news. And the good news is is that, well, you know, Jesus did it all for you. That uh, don't you don't need to work for it, even a little bit. It's, you're saved completely by what Christ has done for you. So, <clears throat> all right. One of the things we do here at Fighting for the Faith, I think this is now becoming a tradition that is setting in. We do what we call Friday Light, and Friday Light means that rather than doing listener email and uh, news and and all that and all that kind of stuff, we stick to one topic. And, uh, and the idea is, is that, uh, it, it could be a sermon review. It could be a lecture. And last week, uh, while I was, uh, ailing with the flu and I never did find out if I was suffering from, uh, N1 H1 notice, I don't like calling it swine flu. Um, I, I don't know if I was, uh, languishing with that particular strain of the flu. I do know that it knocked me on my rear end and knocked me out for four days uh, so whatever it is that I was uh, suffering from, it it, it it you know I'm a big guy. I mean it take it takes an elephant slug to bring me down, and uh, whatever. <laughs> <clears throat> no, don't try that. I just you know I yeah, yeah it's a metaphor. Anyway, <laughs> well uh, we started off um, uh, playing uh, Doctor Kim Riddlebarger's uh, series of lectures on the new perspectives on Paul. And we're going to continue with that today. And the goal here is, is to really kind of give you a flight over the battlefield. And over, you know, I think for the next few weeks, we're going to be listening to uh, Dr. Riddlebarger's lectures. Because at the end of it, you're going, to, you're going to be fluent in what are the primary issues regarding the new perspectives on Paul. What are the new perspectives? And biblically, uh, how do we counter it? Because I, I consider it to be a genuine, legitimate threat. Uh, against uh, the biblical gospel and especially the imputed righteousness of Christ aspect of it. And it poses a significant challenge, and there's a lot of people who are falling for it. And so with that, we're going to dive into today's lecture. So here's Kim Riddlebarger. And this lecture is called The Attack Upon the Lutheran Paul uh, by Christer Stendel and uh, The Introspective Conscience. And uh, that's the uh, the title of this particular lecture. Again, this is uh, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger uh, from, and this is this Christ Reformed Academy lectures that they offer there. It just uh, top notch, uh, college level type of treatment of the topic. And, uh, unfortunately, you do not get any, uh, continuing education credits or, and or college credits for listening to this, but it will help in the real, uh, in the real thing that counts. That's the battlefield, uh, that God has put you on where you get to proclaim Christ's name crucified for our sins. So here's, uh, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger on the, uh, attack against the Lutheran Paul.
1: Okay. Tonight we are in our series, New Perspectives on Paul. This is our second, uh, lecture and our topic tonight is um, the attack on the Lutheran Paul, Christer Stendhal, and the introspective conscience of the West. Now, before we turn to our lecture tonight, I'd like to do just a bit of brief review and call to mind the uh, books we were using for our texts. If I can get the thing to go. Here we go. It's backwards. And we are using... Uh, Cornelius Venomus, Getting the Gospel Right from Banner, which is an abridgment of his second book entitled The Gospel of Free Grace, Acceptance in Christ. That little book, Getting the Gospel Right, is something you all should own, you all should read. It's one of these, these great gems that in an evening you can sit down and work through and get a very good grasp, a once-over-lightly grasp of the new perspective on Paul, it is outstanding. Uh, Venema's book reminds me of Louis Burkhoff in the sense that he can summarize a lot of material very clearly, very effectively in a small amount of space. So you can pick that up and just, you know, plow through it and get a real good handle on this in one reading. Now, the, uh, Getting the Gospel Right is an abridged version of the Gospel of Free Acceptance in Christ. Uh, Dr. Venema did his PhD at Princeton. He knows this topic very well. The Gospel of Free Acceptance is a very good scholarly look at this from a conservative reform perspective. And then the book I recommend to uh, those of you who want to go a little deeper and look at, say, the history of this and look at this from a more critical perspective, I would recommend Stephen Westerholm, Perspectives Old and New on Paul, The Lutheran Paul and His Critics. Uh, Westerholm does a really good job of summarizing the history of the development of this uh, so-called New Perspectives on Paul. He offers some of his own conclusions. Uh, I don't agree with everything that uh, Westerholm concludes, but he does defend the Reformation view and the Reformation understanding of Paul. And there's a uh, the history in, in that volume is probably worth the purchase of the book just for the first half of it to get the, uh, the history laid out here. So that's where we uh, left off last time in terms of bibliography. And uh, you can get at the current stuff, if you wish, in Westerholm's book. Now, I'm going to jump ahead here until we get to slide number. I don't know how to run PowerPoint, so we're still going by the seat of our pants here. I think we left off right there. That's where we left off last time. Good. See, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Slowly but surely, I'm getting it. I'm going to use the board. Yeah, so those of you on this side, you may want to scooch over to the other side because I'm going to use the chalkboard here as well. So, Okay. This is what we left off last time. Um, you recall that the major tenets of New Perspective uh, include the following. Number one, Luther got Paul wrong. Now, according to New Perspective, and the New Perspective, as I mentioned last time, uh, has evolved somewhat beginning with Stendhal through the work of E.P. Sanders, James D.G. Dunn, and then N.T. Wright. So, as New Perspective got going, according to Stendhal, and we'll talk more about Christopher Stendhal tonight, Luther was a man with a guilt-ridden conscience, and he was greatly burdened by his own sins. And so, according to New Perspective devotees, Luther then, with his guilt-ridden conscience, read the letters of Paul, especially Galatians and Romans, through the lens of his own personal struggle with sin and guilt, And thereby, Luther erroneously equated the Judaistic heresy in Galatians with the legalism of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. So, New Perspective begins by saying the problem with the Reformation churches is Luther got the thing off in a ditch from the beginning, and we have to go back before Luther took the thing in a wrong turn and start there. And so, Luther then... Was dealing with the semi-Pelagianism and the works righteousness of medieval Rome. And Luther then read that back into first century Judaism. Luther looked at the Roman Catholicism of his day with its legalism, with its idea that grace enables us to perform good works, which actually merit salvation. Luther looked at that and then read that understanding of guilt, sin, and grace back into first century Judaism. Thereby, Luther saw Judaism, like Rome, as a legalistic religion of works righteousness. So, according to New Perspective, we got off to a bad start. It's like the trajectory of a you know, bullet. It's going to go, and the ark is already off target. You're just never going to get to where you need to go because of Luther's first flawed step. Now, according to Stendhal, Paul, unlike Luther, had a very robust conscience, not guilt-ridden and demonstrated very little anxiety about his own salvation, uh, unlike Luther, and which Stendhal says is typical of Western Christianity. According to Stendhal, in his essay we'll talk more about later on tonight, the Western church following Augustine has been preoccupied with personal salvation and the question, how am I saved? And if you go to the New Testament with this guilt-ridden conscience, asking that question, how am I saved, according to Stendhal and then the later writers, you're going to miss the whole point of Paul's letters. Paul's not answering that question. And so, Paul is primarily concerned with how Gentiles were to be included into the largely Jewish apostolic church, and that step alone is going to cause us to revise our entire understanding of Paul. And so, as I mentioned last time, why New Perspective is so significant is it's asking us to reassess our entire understanding of of the Pauline letters and the Pauline history. Not just tweak it, as we saw in the Federal Vision, but this is asking us to revise our entire understanding of Paul based on a reassessment of Luther's supposedly erroneous reading of first century Judaism. Now, you figured this out quickly, but if Stendhal is correct, this means that from the beginning of the Reformation, although Stendhal claims this can go all the way back to Augustine, Luther fundamentally misunderstood Paul's doctrine of justification. And mistakenly, because of this guilt-ridden conscience, focused on personal salvation. And so the question, how am I saved, Stendhal says, is the wrong question. Instead of seeing the real issue, and that is Jewish-Gentile relations within the church, that's what Paul is actually dealing with in his epistles, the question is, should Jews exclude Gentiles? Should there be division in the church? Stendel's response is, that's what Paul's dealing with. Paul is not answering the question that so many Westerners have, how can I be saved? Rather, Paul's dealing with a question, why is there so much division in the church and why are Jews excluding Gentiles? And that, as you can see, changes everything. Now, it's implied in Stendhal. You see this in the writings of Sanders. You see this in the writings of Dunn. You see this in the writings of N.T. Wright. The rest of Protestantism, then, simply followed suit, including Calvin and especially federal theology. Now, federal theology is that theology enshrined in the Westminster Standards. Federal theology holds to three imputations, uh, the guilt of Adam's sin to all of humanity, the uh, imputation of our sin to Christ as he uh, bears it on the cross, and third, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us in justification, um, followed by a very tightly laid out distinction between law and gospel and the covenant of works covenant of grace, New Testament devotees would say that is absolutely a Protestant scholastic grid forced onto the biblical text trying to get Paul to answer questions Paul was never even trying to answer. And so, Protestantism then especially Luther, certainly Calvin, and all of those confessional reform Christians have been off on this trajectory, taking them away from a true understanding of Paul and implied by that, causing all of the division between the Christian various Christian factions, including Rome and Orthodoxy. The reason why we're not making progress in ecumenical relations is because of Calvin, Luther, and the federal theologians, the Reformed scholastics. They're the problem, not the solution. So you all should be feeling a bit nervous because this is a frontal assault and you have to see it as such upon uh, the Reformation tradition, especially Luther and especially Calvin.
0: Notice uh, Riddlebarger here is uh, discussing this in terms of battle. This is a frontal assault. That's exactly what this is. And uh, you don't stick your head in the sand when you're being attacked, uh, a frontal assault, Uh, Don't stick your head in the sand when you're being flanked. You don't surrender. You counter with God's word. And uh, he's done an artful job here of pointing out what their primary argument is. What's the primary argument? Uh, Luther erroneously got it wrong. It wasn't about uh, your right standing before God. He's trying to figure out how to get Jews and Gentiles to get along. Hmm. Okay, we continue.
1: Now, this focused upon... Personal guilt then in Luther allowed Luther to create what new perspective writers would say is an artificial and unbiblical distinction between law and gospel. If you read the New Testament, supposedly through the lens of this introspective Western conscience, trying to get at the question, how am I saved, you're going to pit law against the gospel. But the resolution to law and gospel is very simple. The law was the Jewish system that they were trying to impose upon the Gentiles. Once Christ came, Jews could no longer impose the law upon the Gentiles. And when Christ comes, the law is no longer binding on Gentiles. And that's what the law-gospel distinction in the New Testament is about. It's not about what God demands, what God freely gives. That's the wrong set of categories. And so if you do that, New Perspective people say, you end up with a radical antithesis between law and gospel, instead of a way to make harmony of them. And right away you can see the idea of making harmony between the law and the gospel will go right at the root of the historic Protestant doctrine of justification. Uh, This is the axe at the root of the tree, so to speak. Now, the problem here is, if you make a distinction between the law and the gospel in the way in which Luther did, trying to resolve this question of, look what God's law demands of me, I am unable to fulfill it, therefore I'm a sinner, therefore I'm in trouble unless God provides a, a payment for my sin and unless that righteousness is imputed to me. That makes justification a mere legal declaration where we heard this before. That this moves the discussion from a familial family discussion of God as a loving father to a courtroom and just a verdict. It makes the the New Testament a sterile courtroom situation in which God is now judge issuing a verdict. And it destroys then the supposed relationship between a father and his children grounded in the love of God. And so justification becomes a legal declaration. It focuses upon the individual as opposed to the church collectively. It focuses on guilt and, and the, the perception that the commandments are there to condemn us. To show us how sinful we are. And merit. This is why, uh, Stendhal and others would say the entire Protestant Catholic discussion over this is improper because Augustine, you know, kind of laid the ground for this. Rome is talking about personal merit through good works. Protestants are talking about the imputation of Christ's righteous. Pox on both of you because that's not what the New Testament's about supposedly. According to new perspective people, so it isn't by works and it isn't by imputation. You got the wrong set of categories. You're asking the wrong questions of Paul. Um, these folks will say, and sadly, this helps lay the groundwork. Although few of them will actually come out and say it for anti-Semitism, because Luther saw Judaism as a legalistic religion of works righteousness. Therefore, what country produced? national socialism, and death camps. And while people don't come out and say it, it's implied that Luther's understanding of Judaism lends Protestantism in its very core to be anti-Semitic and to depreciate Jews and to treat them as though they're under God's wrath. Now, one of the points we made last time was, to understand fully new perspective, you have to see its primary agenda as ecumenical. New new perspective on Paul folks are very, very much concerned in terms of their ethos and piety in seeing a reunification among Christians, especially Rome and Orthodoxy, the Church of England, and whatever branches of Protestantism will actually uh, be willing to do this. So, if your goal is ecumenical, then you've got to get rid of Luther and Calvin because we're the least ecumenical of anybody in the church. And so this is kind of an end run around the Protestant confessions, around the Protestant Reformation. And the goal is not to attack the historicity of Christianity as old guard liberalism did. This is not Boltmann, as we're going to see. This is a reaction against Boltmann. But the goal, the end, the, the telos here is a reunification of Christianity. And the best way to do that is to remove the Reformation, because the Reformation and its its uh, division is still what divides Christianity to this day. This guilt and merit scheme that the Augustinian Catholics have, Luther's reaction to it, focusing on personal sin and guilt. That's got to be getting rid of, uh, out of the way, so that we can go back and deal with these questions of unity and it's it's that Luther guy who got it wrong that started this division that continues on to this day. Uh, between Rome, Protestantism, and even Orthodoxy. Now, the second essential tenet of the new perspective on Paul is that Second Temple Judaism was not legalistic. Now, here we are coming up against the work of E.P. Sanders, and we'll spend our time next week looking in more detail at uh, Sanders' work, um, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Um, According to New Perspective, especially the trajectory of Sanders, we now supposedly know that Second Temple Judaism, and that's the Judaism in the days of Jesus and Paul, Second Temple Judaism was not a religion of works righteousness as Luther assumed, but was instead a religion structured along the lines of what is called covenantal gnomism. And this term is huge in New Perspective. You all should know it and be familiar with it. Covenantal gnomism. Huge. The idea here is the Jews are the elect people of God. God chose them as the apple of His eye and therefore they are placed in the covenant by grace. And here you'll find covenant used without any discrimination between covenants. You just have covenant all... Uh, thrown together uh, no differentiation made between the various covenants, uh, all uh, particular aspects of redemptive history where the covenant are all part of covenant and this is kind of a radical mono covenantalism uh, as I mentioned, one of the great benefits of new perspective is they forced much of the church to go back and consider that god's dealing with his people is covenantal uh, very, very helpful stress, and there 's much in new perspective exegesis that brings the light of covenant to bear on some really problematic passages in that sense it's helpful. But all covenant is collapsed into covenant with no differentiation really made between the Sinaitic covenant, uh, the covenant of grace, no such thing as a covenant of works certainly and it all gets just uh, blurred and smudged together. Now, since the Jews are the elect people of God, they're placed in the covenant by grace, they're not placed in the covenant through a semi-Pelagian scheme of works righteousness. Says Sanders, look, when you look at the sources, the the sources of Second Temple Judaism, there's repeated mention made of God choosing this people not because of anything in them, but because of something good in God. A real strong uh, uh, stress placed on sovereign grace. Not in the way in which we as Reformed Christians would understand that, but God in His grace choosing Israel as His own, placing them in His covenant. Now, as this is fleshed out, the Jews, however, maintain their place within the covenant through obedience to the law and through the means of the atoning uh, sacrifices that God has provided for his people. So those who were faithful to the demands and stipulations of the covenant will receive their inheritance at the final judgment. So, you're all tracking now. You're in by grace, but how do you stay in? How do you stay in? By works. In by grace, sustained by works? By obedience. So, this is where we get the language throughout New Perspective discussions of getting in by grace and staying in by obedience. Now, there are different uh, theologians with different emphases here, but generally speaking, New perspective writers contend that Paul is operating within the Jewish world of covenantal nomism. That's what Luther got wrong. In by grace, stay in by obedience. And that Judaism in the New Testament is not a supposed legalism like that of medieval Rome. Now, Luther just misunderstood this. And so Luther got things Backwards. Luther started with the human problem, sin, and reasoned back to its solution in Christ. But according to New Perspective writers, for Paul, Christ is the solution to the problem of how Jews and Gentiles are saved. And so you start with the solution, Christ, and then Paul reasons back to the problem, our plight, which is sin and division in the church. And so this, according to New Perspective Writers, leads Paul to reject the law as a means of salvation because salvation comes through faith in Christ. The law has to be rejected for Gentiles because we're members of the church by faith. And that explains why Paul rejects the law because Jews were using the law to exclude Gentiles from membership in the covenant. The Jews were using the law Along racial and cultural and ethnic lines to exclude Gentiles from full participation in the covenant. With the coming of Christ, now we're in by faith. And so the law is not binding on Gentiles. That's why Paul says such derogatory things about the law in contrast to the gospel. It isn't because the law and the gospel are opposed to each other. It's because the law was being used, as, was being used by the Jews as a, as, a, as a prejudicial, sinful way of keeping Gentiles out. And Jews had no right to ask the Gentiles to, to keep the law because the law is essentially their cultural uh, behavior. So, this means that a new perspective, justification becomes completely redefined. Justification does not deal with how individuals are to be saved. So, one of the first things you'll find when you talk to uh, New Perspective devotees and you read the, the literature, you'll find discussion of justification, but the terms are redefined. Justification deals with who is in the church and who is not. All those who believe in Jesus are in, members of the covenant, whether Jew or Gentile. And the problem with the Judaism of Paul's day was not that it was a legalistic system of works righteousness as Luther had taught, but that Jews were excluding Gentiles from the church. And so the way into membership in the church was only through faith in Jesus, which is justification. The error Paul was refuting was that Jews were excluding Gentiles from the covenant on a racial or cultural basis. And so in this sense, Judaism is deficient because it isn't as rich as Christianity. Christianity is superior because of Christ. But Judaism isn't necessarily wrong. And you can see how this pushes the ecumenical agenda because, as I mentioned last time, post-World War II, we have this a certain uh, almost unstated Holocaust theology in which no one in the academy can dare say that Jews are somehow under the wrath of God for their violation of God's law after what they went through in the Holocaust. No one will say that. And so New Perspective then offers a way to say that Judaism is fine for Jews. But for Gentiles, it's faith in Christ. Gentiles are not under the law because the law was for Israel and the law has to do with these cultural and ethnic badges. So you can just see how the whole system is being redefined here from the ground up. And so this is not just a minor tweaking. This is a... a, a complete uh, redefinition of everything. Now, this is especially true in the writings of E.P. Sanders. Uh, first century Judaism was radically exclusive and tied to the law and its ceremonies, whereas the coming of Jesus was supposedly to ensure that membership in the covenant was not limited only to Jews. And so, in the light of Christ, it's argued, the Jews had no business requiring Gentiles to obey their law. And so this means that justification is not in any sense a central doctrine in Paul. Uh, It's not tied to individual salvation as historically Protestants have made it out to be. Justification deals with the inclusion of the Gentiles into the covenant, into the church. And therefore, according to New Perspective, it has nothing whatsoever to do with God imputing to us the righteousness of Christ through faith so that we can be declared righteous. Rather... We're justified if we're members of the covenant community through faith in Jesus. If you're in the covenant, you're justified. Jew or Gentile. If you're in the covenant, you're justified. You're in by grace. You stand by obedience. If you're in the covenant, you're justified. To be justified means to be in the covenant. entire reworking of the definition. Now, a third essential tenet of New Perspective has to do with the phrase works of the law, a passage prominent in... Galatians 2.16, that this refers not to good works, as we have historically understood, but to Jewish ethnic badges. And I can't say the word badges and not think of Melbrooks. It's like Moses coming down the mountain with the 15. No, no, the Ten Commandments. I just, you know, Melbrooks has just destroyed that text for me. Badges? We don't need no stinking Badges? Paul's phrase, works of the law, according to New Perspective, does not refer to good works done in obedience to the commandments, but instead refers to those ethnic badges, or what New Perspective writers, especially Dunn, call boundary markers, things like circumcision, dietary laws, feast days, and so on, things that essentially divided Jews from Gentiles. According to Dunn's modification of Sanders, the Jews were not using these badges, or the Jews were using these badges to determine who was in the covenant, and who is not. And that's what Paul is refuting, not the idea we get in by good works. We are in by faith, not by ethnic badges, not by keeping these boundary markers. We're members of the covenant by faith in Jesus, not through dietary laws, feast days, circumcision, and so on. So, if you follow this out, you end up looking at Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified. Uh, By works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. If you read Dunn on this, Dunn will tell you that Paul is not saying that we cannot be justified, good works done in obedience to the law of God. That's the traditional view. That's where Luther went wrong. Rather, Paul is saying that the ethnic badges of first century Judaism, works of the law, do not determine who is in the church or who is justified. It's faith in Jesus, not obedience to Jewish ceremonies which determines who is in the covenant. So even seminal passages like Galatians 2.16, I think Dunn's exegesis of this is just flat out wrong, um, those passages then are completely reinterpreted in light of this idea that works of the law have nothing to do with me doing good works. Rather, it has to do with Jews requiring that I, as a Gentile, live like a Jew. And because I'm in the covenant by faith, I don't need to keep the dietary laws of the feast days or live as a Jew. So it's a, it's a retweaking of that. Point four, the essential tenets of the new perspective. The gospel focuses upon the lordship of Christ. And here we move uh, largely to the work of N.T. Wright. Now, according to Wright, the gospel as traditionally understood, that is by those nasty confessional Lutherans and Calvinists, that places too much emphasis upon an individual sinner and not upon the lordship of Christ. According to Wright's modification of new perspective, the gospel is the message that in Christ's death and resurrection, he has won a decisive victory over all the powers which enslave us. Does that sound like uh, any other theologians you may know? The person that it, it reminds me of is Gustav Allen's Christus Victor.
0: Now, I'm going to pause right there. I, I, <clears throat> we'll pick up the uh, on the other side of the break this uh, look at N.T. Wright's uh, view. It, it, it's kind of a Christus Victor motif, the Jesus came to stick it to the Caesar man. Uh, is what I call that particular gospel. All right, we are up on our first break. Fantastic lecture by uh, Dr. Riddlebarger, and I hope that this is uh, helping you become familiar and conversant with the whole new perspectives so that uh, you can be used by God to give an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within you, so that you can defend the Christian faith against this very, very serious error and frontal attack against the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone by christ's work alone all right if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on facebook that's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or you can ask to be my follow me on twitter my name there's pirate christian we'll be
2: right back Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's...
3: Monty Python's
0: Flying Circus Church.
2: Thanks for calling Saddleback Customer Service. This is Josh. How can I help you today? Yes, I would like to return the Jesus I received from you. I heard there was a 60-day return policy. Yes, sir, there is. But can I ask you why you want to return Jesus? Well, I was told if I received Jesus, he'd fix all my problems. And quite honestly, I'm not satisfied with this Jesus. Sir, what is your Jesus doing right now? Nothing. He just sits there. Have you taken time to feed your Jesus? Well, I went to church for the preaching, but nothing has happened. Sir, if you read the fine print on the warranty, you'll see that you are responsible for feeding, not the church or the pastor. Oh. Well, can I exchange this Jesus for another? Sir, what kind of Jesus are you looking for? I need the Jesus that forgives sins. You know, changes your life on the inside. Helps you overcome the sins of the flesh, never leaves me nor forsakes me, and will take me to heaven when I die? Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We don't stock that Jesus here. You'll have to go somewhere else to have that Jesus. Well, I guess I'll just stick with the one I got since I already opened the box. Wonderful, sir. Can I interest you in getting Jesus for your friends and family? Why would I do that?
0: What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A skeleton in god 's closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth, no matter what the cost. said Paul Erdman of the New York Times with a skeleton in god 's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, The Theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of christianity it 's a superb book. A skeleton in God's closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the home page. It's available for fourteen ninety nine plus four ninety five shipping and handling, and all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. We are back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning there is such a thing as truth and error, sound doctrine and false doctrine. And we point that out here on this program, like all the time. All right, I need to remind you, fighting for the faith. This is listener-supported radio. That—that's right. We—we we're, we're, depend on you in order to pay our bills, so that we can continue to serve you with fighting for the faith. And the good news is, my uh, supporting fighting for the faith. You not only support this radio program; you actually support the entire mission of pirate. Christian radio. Do I hear a hearty "rr" from you for that? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, listen, we're we're looking for a thousand of our listeners, a thousand of our listeners to join our fighting for the faith pirate Christian radio crew. And by doing this, you sign up and you uh, basically set it up in such a way that a mere six dollars and ninety five cents is automatically deducted from your account every single month. It's only six dollars and ninety five cents a month, and when we get to that thousand, then at least. We have our minimum uh, needs met on a on a monthly basis here for uh, fighting for the faith and pirate Christian radio. So it's a it's a fine thing to do, and when you do, you actually get access to our secret pirate Christian cove. That's right. It's a it's a secret safe harbor of great theology, and it's a growing treasure trove of theological works, discussions, and it's the place where our our, our crew members uh congregate to discuss and read these things and learn together it's a fantastic place by the way loving how it's turning out loving the conversations there and uh so if you would like uh the location of our secret pirate pirate christian cove join our crew and you will be you will be given instructions on how to access this secret treasure trove of theological works and stuff and so the way you do this go to fightingforthefaith.com that's fightingforthefaith.com And when you arrive there, you will see on the homepage uh, a button that says Join Our Crew. Click on that, fill out the information, the setup uh, for the uh, automatic $6.95. And then shortly after you receive your confirmation, you will get an email. And that's right. Set your spam filter up, by the way, so so that you can, you know, it doesn't end up in spam. Uh, We've had a few people who've had our 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 secret communiques. Uh, The email address that you'll be receiving it from is cove at piratechristianradio.com, and it'll give you instructions on how to locate, find, and enter into our secret pirate cove. Sorry. <laughs> and if you'd like to donate above and beyond that, uh, you can do so by clicking on our Donate button or making your gifts payable to Fighting for the Faith, at, uh, and that's Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, we're doing Friday Night today, and we're at lecture number two. On the uh, on the new perspectives on Paul by Kim Riddlebarger, great stuff, great overview today. He's discussing the attack against the the uh, the Lutheran Paul, and, uh, and and we got we still have quite a ways to go. So here's uh, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger on the attack by the new perspectives guys on the Lutheran Paul. And he's right now he's talking about N.T. Wright and his new Uh, gospel of jesus came to stick it to the caesar man the whole jesus is lord thing not caesar
1: very strong similarities i think to all in, in in right therefore instead of telling people how to be saved preaching the gospel involves declaring christ's victory over those powers which enslave us and so the gospel is the sign the the declaration of god's love and of jesus world transforming significance so gospel preaching is to declare god's love and jesus Uh, transformation over all things because of His victory over death in His resurrection. Now, this means that the righteousness of God, huge theme in Paul, does not refer to an attribute in God which requires Him to punish all sin and reward the righteous. If it did, we're back to Luther, distinguishing between the law and the Gospel. We're back to justification being the imputation of an alien righteousness to the sinner. Rather, because that's all wrong, righteousness doesn't refer to that. The righteousness of God has nothing to do with that. So according to New Perspective, if you see things in that category, that the righteousness of God is an attribute which requires God to demand perfect obedience and conformity to His commandments, seeing things like that has led to a preoccupation with merit and reward. Hence the traditional Protestant doctrine of justification, which is about satisfying God's justice and his wrath and his anger, and the requirement being a perfect righteousness. Rather, say new perspective writers, we must see God's righteousness as God's covenantal faithfulness. And this faithfulness is seen when God fulfills his promises to Israel. This righteousness of God is seen in God's acts, his actions. And so while the Bible does use legal or courtroom metaphors for this at times, notice the the complete revision here. It refers not to the status of the person before the court, but to the actions of the judge. And so when the judge pronounces someone in his court as righteous, it's because the judge has acted righteously. And this eliminates altogether the necessity for a category of imputation of righteousness. Righteousness in the New Testament, the righteousness of God is when God acts righteously, as God always does according to the covenant, because He's faithful. That's what righteousness is. This has nothing to do with the verdict that God's pronouncing on somebody who may be guilty. This is God's act. God is righteous. That's what the righteousness of God is. Therefore, there's nothing in the New Testament about this being imputed to sinners. This is about God's righteous actions. And so justification then has nothing to do with the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Instead, it's applied to the actions of God, who has placed both Jews and Gentiles within his covenant. That's what justification is. And when Jesus dies and then rises, God demonstrates his righteousness by securing covenant membership for all who are brought into the covenant community through baptism and who wear the badge of covenant membership, which is faith. And thus, faith in Christ is the only proper badge for covenant members, not works of the law, the ethnic badges of Judaism. And so justification, then, is the declaration made about all those who, quote, wear the badge of faith. Those who wear this badge and who will receive final vindication on the day of judgment are those who have the law written upon the hearts, that is, those who are doers of the law. So, you get this very strong sense that faith grants us entrance into the covenant. Faith is the. Let me put it a different way. Faith is the sign we're in the covenant. Faith is the badge we're in the covenant. And how do we know we'll stand in the final judgment? We become doers of the law, not just hearers only. And so there seems to be an initial justification and a final justification, the initial justification is by some entrance, some form of entrance in the church, baptism, or faith, and then a final justification according to perseverance and works. So, as we conclude then the very quickly, once over lightly, treatment of the basic tenets of New Perspective, we have to see that New Perspective is a complete revision of Pauline theology, based upon a revised understanding of Second Temple Judaism. Um, much of the polemic recently against Dunn, Sanders, and Wright has been uh, conservative scholars who have done a very good job of showing that Sanders is very selective in the way in which he gathered his sources for Second Temple Judaism. Uh, Sanders has shown that there is, within Second Temple Judaism, a gratia tradition. There are Jews who champion uh, the election of God as the basis for Israel's hope, but right beside those statements are statements that sound very much like works righteousness. And so instead of Sanders being right and Luther being wrong, it's clear that there are elements of both in Second Temple Judaism, and it's a lot more complex than we had originally thought. That's all Second Temple Judaism is. It's a, there are all kinds of diverse and various elements in Second Temple Judaism, and Sanders is wrong when he says it was exclusively a Sola Grazia religion. It is not. Two, New Perspective is a complete rejection of the traditional Protestant understanding of justification. Luther got it wrong. Everyone who follows Luther perpetuates Luther's basic error. Third, according to New Perspective, the law-gospel distinction is a distortion of Paul's gospel. Uh, So would any attempt then to push for imputation uh, any attempt to push for a covenant of works, covenant of grace distinction, all those things are are utterly fallacious, a uh, complete misunderstanding of Paul. And fourth, according to New Perspective, justification is not a central theme in Paul, and it has to do with who's in the covenant through faith in Jesus, not with the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Which is why N.T. Wright can say this isn't uh, justification doesn't fall in the heading of soteriology of salvation. It falls in the heading of Ecclesiology—it has to do with who's in the church, not with who's saved. So that's a quick, once-over, lightly uh, summation of the essential tenets of New Perspective, and that gets us to our topic tonight, which is the attack upon the Lutheran Paul, the works of Christopher Stendel, and we've got about uh, 25 minutes, so I'll go through this uh, fairly quickly. Now, Christopher Stendel was born in 1921. Apparently, he's still living. He's a Swedish theologian, New Testament scholar, uh, had been the bishop of Stockholm for some time. He's now emeritus bishop. Uh, he received his doctorate uh, Uppsala in Sweden, a uh, highly uh, academic Lutheran university, um, uh, well-renowned, well-highly regarded, I should say. Uh, he became professor and dean at the Divinity School at Harvard. And if you know anything about Harvard Div, you know it's uh, to the left of Saturn, it's about as uh, left-wing an institution as you can get. Um, he was at Harvard and then went, was uh, elected bishop of Stockholm. Uh, after retiring, he returned to the United States and is uh, now Mellon Professor of Divinity Emeritus at Harvard. Uh, that's where the picture comes from, by the way, is Harvard's current web page, so they still show him as a, as a professor. Uh, he taught at Brandeis, which is interesting because Brandeis is an uh, institution that is Jewish. And so, Stendhal has uh, taught at Brandeis because his interest is in Jew-Gentile relations. That's his, that's his bag. That's his, his uh, area of study and focus. And so, through his interest in the Jewish context of the New Testament, Stendhal uh, has developed an interest in Jewish studies. He's been active uh, his entire career in the Jewish-Christian dialogue. Now, in the opinion of Mark Seyfried, who I think is a very insightful uh, New Testament scholar although his uh, latest book on the righteousness of Christ offers a very ill-founded attack upon the Reformed standards, especially the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, Seyfried says, and I think he's absolutely right, most contemporary Pauline scholarship is a reaction against Rudolf Bultmann's quintessentially modern reading of Paul, which was based upon an existentialist appropriation of Paul's theology of justification. Bultmann is, as I mentioned last time, kind of the, the last of the radical German uh, biblical scholars. And by radical, I mean, uh, for Bultmann, the only thing we can know about the Jesus of history was that he was crucified. Pretty much everything else in the New Testament is mythological. And that's not a problem for Bultmann, because at the end of the day, faith is not trusting in an object appropriated and understood by reason, something that Hodges and Warfield would have said, Faith is this existentialist commitment. It's the leap. And so it doesn't matter whether the Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history are one and the same. So as Bultmann. They're probably not. What matters is the leap. This radical commitment to Jesus in all things. And so um, new perspective then from the beginning is a reaction against Bultmann. And you have this theme in the German universities where the young scholars eat their mentors and the entire history of Tübingen down to Marburg, down to some of the current German universities, is the mentor trains a young scholar. The young scholar then tweaks his mentor's position and in some cases even completely overturns it. And that's how this uh, is conducted. It would be pretty tough to have your doctoral students uh, you know, wait till you die and then say everything you said was wrong. But that's kind of what happens in, in German critical critical studies. Boltmont's kind of the end of this. And from Boltmont on, especially with what's called the third quest for the historical Jesus, the new perspective on Paul, there is a sharp turn to the right. And by that, I don't mean a return to conservative, historic, uh, biblical Christianity, but I mean uh, the sense in which the New Testament is taken seriously as history. Uh, form criticism is, is largely laughed at today. Uh, Bultmann argued that the, the sources that underlie the New Testament are little groups of oral tradition that circulated according to the, the form of the statement. So you had Jesus stories, you had miracle stories, you had liturgical needs in the church, and that kind of all comes together uh, early 2nd century, and those become the New Testament documents. You don't get that after Bultmann. Even in Jesus' studies, uh, there are a few radical Bultmannians around, maybe Dominic Cross and the Jesus Seminar. But by and large, the New Testament scholars today, Martin Hengel and others, take the New Testament pretty seriously as history. Don't believe it's divinely inspired. May not believe in things like the deity of Christ, but see it as real history. See the Judaism which it formed as important. Concerned about getting back at, at, the, at what really happened in a, in a much less destructive way as Boltmann. And so writing largely in reaction to the moralistic theology of Albert Ritschel, Ritschel is the tail end of the German moralists where basically the goal was to make Jesus look like a German liberal. You know, as Rod says, Jesus is just like Alan Alda. Um, he's urbane. He uh, can be a little flippant. Um, he's he basically there to help you live a, a happy life and because he cares about you. And he uh, happens to embrace all of the uh, uh, great themes of the Weimar Republic. He's a German. And so Bultmann is reacting against ritual, and he constitutes, I think, what is the high water mark of the modernist impulse. Bultmann is about as radical as it gets. Um, and so building upon this Kantianism, this that is thick at the University of Marburg, uh, Bultmann's existentialist interpretation of Paul's doctrine of justification fits into this intellectual framework of a Europe that's been brutally torn apart by two horrible world wars. There's a reason why existentialism succeeded in Europe and never really got a foothold in America. Because after World War One, remember there's a whole generation of young men that just went off to war and never came back. Millions of young men, gone. The cities intact, but you know, half of France still has mustard gas, you know, animals are still stepping on unexplored artillery shells. Um, Then you've got in the cities economic collapse. You have the rise of of communism. And so if you know anything about the rise of Hitler and National Socialism in Germany, Hitler's initial interest is not in Judaism. It's anti-communism. And so the brown church arise to drive the communists out of German government oh yeah, and the Jews are probably responsible for it. But that comes later. So Europe is just a seething cauldron, and existentialism flourishes in that particular context. And so Boltmann's influence reaches its zenith right after World War II, but it has been in marked decline uh, ever since. And so this decline of interest in Bultmann was brought about in part because of an increasingly vocal protest by this new generation of New Testament scholars contending quote, that Paul was not concerned with isolated individuals or their consciences as Bultmann's existentialism demanded. Again, remember that the whole point of existentialism is self-authentication, to act boldly, uh, to commit boldly, to go where no man has gone before. Um, There's there's all kinds of existentialist themes, self-authentication and so on. Um, And that's how Luther, of course read through Bultmann, Luther was doing that. Luther's the first to, to break through this radical understanding of faith. Bultmann carries it to its logical conclusion. And that's why New Perspective guys don't like Luther, because the Luther they're reacting against is the Luther of Bultmann. So, Paul's not concerned with isolated individuals or their consciences, but instead with believing communities of Jews and Gentiles. Now, on the face, that's a very positive step in terms of understanding the New Testament. But this has the effect, positively, of returning to a more historical focus on the Jewishness of Paul and Jesus. That's why you start to see his spate of books in the 70s and afterwards on Jesus the Jew. Now, why would that be a, a surprise? Because for two, genera- for two centuries in Germany, Jesus was a German liberal. And now scholars are saying, no, 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 we have to understand Jesus in his historical context. We have to understand Paul in his historical context. We can't take the Lutheran Paul on its face. We've got to go back and look at Paul as a Jew. Saul of Tarsus, how does that change things? And so that part of new perspective, I think, is very healthy and has, has proved to be a real advance in our understanding of Second Temple Judaism and an understanding of Jesus and the culture in which Jesus lived and also in Paul. However, there's an agenda here that goes way beyond just getting back to a better understanding of the New Testament. This changing intellectual climate brought with it a significant effort to reevaluate Bultmann's interpretation of Paul's gospel. And so much of the flourish of activity in Pauline studies during the last 30 years or so really is a direct response to what Seifert calls, quote, Bultmann's faulty understanding of Judaism that prevailed, especially in German Protestant scholarship around the turn of the century, and which, it is argued, negatively influenced Bultmann's reading of Paul. Now, mind you, after the war, this German Jesus, this existentialist understanding of faith, becomes almost a ball and chain on a scholar's leg because it can be argued by the sociology department by the chairman of the history department that that is intrinsically anti-semitic. So Bultmann goes out of style just almost overnight because of the post-World War II uh, situation. So don't buy stock in the Bultmann family. Now one of Bultmann's own students, a very brilliant uh, scholar Ernst Kiesemann, um was one of the significant figures to react to his mentor. Kazemon is the one who has pushed for a new understanding of the righteousness of God and almost all of Wright and, and uh, Dunn and Sanders and their, their redefinition of righteousness goes back to uh, Kazemon's commentary on Romans. Um, they don't agree with Kazemon, but he starts to push this uh, understanding away from this rigid notion of God being a vengeful wrathful God and so on. But it's Christer Stendel who, perhaps more than anybody else, deals the death blow to the Bultmannian interpretation of Paul. Building upon the work of uh, Johannes uh, Monk and Kummel, um, most notably Kummel's work on one of the most disputed passages in the New Testament, Romans 7, I want to come back in just a second. Stendel succeeded in shifting the focus away from Luther's supposed individualistic reading of Paul to new ground namely the Apostles' robust conscience. So a couple of things going on here. Werner George Kummel published an essay in the 20s in German on Romans 7. And Kummel argued very compellingly, and it's, it is now the majority position within Christendom, even conservative circles, that in Romans chapter 7, Paul is not speaking autobiographically. Now you know that The debate, at least in conservative evangelical circles, is between the Wesleyan higher life reading, that Romans 7 is Paul before his conversion, and the Reformed Lutheran reading, which is that Romans 7 is a description of the normal Christian life. Chasemon, following some of the church fathers and even Jacobus Arminius himself, argues that Romans chapter 7 is not autobiographical. This is a diatribe in which Paul is identifying the struggles of a hypothetical person under the conviction of the law. So that in Romans 7, we have to see this as part of salvation history. This is what happened to people in the history of God before Christ came. This is their experience of the law before Christ came. This has nothing to do with an individual Christian saying, I delight in God's law, but I've sinned against it, wretched man that I am. What do I do now? has nothing to do with that. This is somebody who lived apart from Christ. And this is their experience in redemptive history without the gospel. It has nothing to do with Paul's biography. So, from the time of Bernard George Kummel on down to the present, even in the work of an otherwise outstanding commentary on Romans by someone like Doug Moo, Romans 7 is seen as part of this description of the, of the history of redemption not as a part of individual salvation, and it's a, it, that is as groundbreaking and, and as important as the influence, uh, as important on the history of Pauline studies as is Stendhal's essay. Uh, you, we cannot emphasize how strongly Kummel's essay has influenced New Testament studies, along with Stendhal, who says Paul is not talking from the perspective of a guy struggling with sin and guilt. Paul sees things as wonderful. He's not struggling at all. He has a robust conscience. It's Luther's Luther's neurotic behavior that caused Luther to to make Paul uh, into a navel-gazer. Paul isn't like that at all, says Stendhal. Now, according to Stendhal's groundbreaking essay, um, The Apostle Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West, first published back in 1961, It's extremely problematic, says Stendhal, to seek for a kind of common universal human experience which can transcend the ages. Think about that for a second. Human experience is not static, but dynamic. So our struggle as Westerners with high technology is not going to be the same as first century Palestinians. Human experience then moves, it evolves, it changes. Therefore, we cannot make the supposed introspective conscience of the modern Western world into a kind of interpretive common denominator between the modern West and the ancient East and then read ancient texts such as Paul's writings accordingly. It says, Stendhal, it's the height of arrogance to read our concerns back into Paul's letters. And we come at this with this guilt-ridden conscience. We come at this with the, the white guilt you know, with all the horrible things we've done to all the oppressed peoples of the world, and then we go back and read Paul as though this is an explanation to our guilt. When Stendhal says, this has nothing to do with that. And so Stendhal argues, and I'm quoting, the problem becomes acute when one tries to picture the function and the manifestation of introspection in the life and writings of the Apostle Paul. It is the more acute since it is exactly at this point that Western interpreters have found the common denominator between Paul and the experience of man. Since Paul's statements about justification by faith have been hailed as the answer to the problem which faces the ruthlessly honest man in his practice of introspection. Especially in Protestant Christianity, which, however, at this point has its roots in Augustine and the piety of the Middle Ages, the appalling awareness of sin has been interpreted in the light of Luther's struggle with his conscience. But it is exactly at this point that we can discern the most dramatic difference between Luther and Paul between the 16th and the 1st century and perhaps between Eastern and Western Christianity. If Luther hadn't misread Paul, there's a greater chance that the church, East and West, would be unified.
0: All right, we're going to pause right there. I mean, the plot thickens. I, we still have about 28 minutes left of this lecture, and it's just as educational as they get. You have to understand where they're coming from before you can understand how do you counter it biblically. And uh, Christer Stendel is, I think he's way off the mark. Uh, however, his uh, argument, it, it, at least it's coherent, But I think it uh, overlooks some very, very important things. But I can't wait to hear uh, how Dr. Riddlebarger resolves the conflict at this point. So we're going to pause here for our second break uh, and uh, pay some bills, and uh, we'll go from there. But uh, again, uh, very compelling stuff. Look forward to hearing the resolution uh, on the other side of the break. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
2: Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
1: This is the air I breathe.
0: This is the air I I've had enough. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with A Skeleton in God's Closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99, plus $4.95 shipping and handling, and all proceeds support the ongoing work of pirate christian radio visit pirate christian com and get your copy of a skeleton in god's closet today the holiday travel season is rapidly approaching and the last thing you want to do especially in these economic times is pay more for airfare and travel expenses than you need to that's why pirate christian radio's featured advertiser cheapo air i kid you not that's their name Provides travel services that you need at the lowest possible prices. Cheapo Air is an eight-time consecutive Hitwise U.S. Top Ten Award winner for diversified travel services. So, if you're looking for low-cost airfares for the upcoming holiday season, Cheapo Air has what you're looking for. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That's right, Pirate Christian Radio dot com forward slash cheap you will find on that page a special promo code that will save you an additional ten dollars off of any airfare or travel services that you purchase at cheapo air that's right so visit pirate christian com forward slash cheap and book your holiday travel today Wrapping up our Friday light version of Fighting for the Faith today.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: It's going to be a busy weekend. All right. So, without any further ado, here's the last segment of uh, Kim Riddleberger on the new perspectives on Paul, the uh, attack against uh, the Lutheran Paul, or, or the, the, the attacks against the Lutheran Paul. You, 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 we've been listening. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Decrepitude. I'm telling you. I'm telling.
1: Here we go. It's Protestantism, and it's stress upon the guilty conscience and upon the personal quest for salvation that has driven Christianity off into the ditch. Everybody got that? And that's driven by the ecumenical movement, the desire to see Christianity reunited. That's that's just fundamental to this. And if you don't see that, you'll miss, I think, the whole agenda of New Perspective, and especially what people like Wright and others are doing. Now, so Steno, what's needed is a corrective. And of course, he'll provide us with one. What we need is a fresh look at the Pauline writings themselves, especially those which will ultimately demonstrate that Paul was equipped with what in our eyes must be called a rather robust conscience. In Sennel's interpretation of Philippians 3, it probably would be a good idea to read the passage Philippians 3, 4 to 6. The apostle writes, uh, he's talking about confidence in Christ and, and in the flesh. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Is this guy guilty? Is his conscience bothering him? just the opposite, says Stendhal. This guy's talking about how his conscience isn't bothering him because he was blameless according to the law. A little bit different reading of Philippians 3 than you may be used to. And so Paul speaks, says Stendhal, most fully about his life before his Christian calling, and there's no indication that he had any difficulty in fulfilling the law. Close quote. In fact, says Stendhal, quoting again, the statements about the impossibility of fulfilling the law stand side by side with Philippians 3, six, where Paul can say I was blameless as to righteousness of law, that is. So Paul speaks about his subjective conscience in full accord with his Jewish training. Says Stendhal, you look at Paul, and here's a guy that's anything but guilt-ridden. Here's a guy whose conscience is very robust. This isn't anything remotely close to what Luther says Paul is like. Thus, Paul's problem is not the subjective sense of guilt, which is associated with the introspective conscience of the modern world. According to Stendhal, quoting again, Paul never urges Jews to find Christ in answer to the language of a plagued conscience. Now start to run through the New Testament, or start to run through the Pauline letters in your own mind. Paul never urges Jews to find Christ in the, as the answer or find in Christ the answer to the uh, to uh, the anguish of a plagued conscience.
0: Wow, that's quite a statement. Whew.
1: <clears throat> the Western mind errs as did Luther by reading transgression language individually and therefore psychologically rather than corporately, as Paul intended. the gentiles sin, the Jews sin, but those in the West preoccupied with personal guilt, made it seem as though you had sinned against me and I have sinned against God. Therefore, Christianity is about assuaging that guilt language. That's not what it's about at all. Paul didn't respond like that, says Stendhal. So this means that Paul's point is not about an individual finding peace with a gracious God and relief from personal guilt, but about how Jew and Gentile as distinct ethnic groups fit into salvation history respectively. Quoting again, The actual transgressions in Israel as a people, not in each and every individual, show that the Jews are not better than the Gentiles. So all Paul is showing is that Jewish self-righteousness has no basis. Gentiles are in by faith, Jews have the law, the Jews can't use their law to judge Gentiles and think they're more righteous than Gentiles are. That's what Paul's saying. And so they've sinned as a people, hence they stand guilty before God, quoting again, as guilty as the Gentiles. And thus salvation is now found in Christ, not law, quote, an avenue which is equally open to Jews and Gentiles, since it's not based on the law, in which the very distinction between the two rests. And so, this means that Luther's notion of Samuel Eustace at the who were simultaneously sinful and justified, uh, may have some foundation in Paul's writings, but it cannot be substantiated as the center of Paul's conscious attitude toward personal sins. So, if you're reading Paul's letters and you think Paul's talking about how you can be justified and freed from the guilty of your individual sins, you're reading Paul through the Western conscience. You're not reading Paul as a first century Jew would. And apparently, says Stendhal, Paul did not have the type of introspective conscience which such a formula seems to presuppose. And so that would explain in part why Paul makes such infrequent references to forgiveness of sin. Now think about that for a minute. Paul makes infrequent reference to the forgiveness of sin. And why the Antoniocene fathers in the Eastern Church are focused upon doxology or meditative mysticism or exhortation and not with plagued consciences of the West. That's why the church fathers, that's why the Orthodox churches in the East are far more concerned about doxology and mystery than they are with sin and guilt. And so according to Stendhal, the problem we are trying to isolate could be expressed in hermeneutical terms somewhat like this, and I'm quoting The Reformers' interpretation of Paul rests on an uh, an analogy where Pauline's statements about faith and works, law and gospel, Jews and Gentiles, are read in the framework of late medieval piety. The law, the Torah, with its specific requirements of circumcision and food restrictions, becomes a general principle of legalism in religious matters. Stendhal's solution to that misreading is, quote, where Paul was concerned about the possibility of Gentiles to be included in the Messianic community, His statements are now read as answers to the quest for assurance about man's salvation out of a common human predicament. There is no common human predicament because human character changes, which is dynamic, not static. And so to read back our quest for salvation to Paul is to misunderstand Paul. When Paul was answering the question, how do Gentiles become part of the covenant? How are they in? You're asking the wrong question of Paul. And says Stendel. We look in vain for a statement in Paul in which Paul would speak about himself as an actual sinner. When he speaks about his conscience, he witnesses to his good conscience before men and God. So you're all running through your, your mental concordances saying, Where does where does Paul say he's a sinner? anticipating that his reader might recall to mind certain Pauline statements found in Romans chapter 7, for example, Stendhal appeals to Kummel and concludes that Paul, quote, is not primarily concerned about man's or his e- own ego or predicament. In fact, when Paul asserts, it is not I who do it, but the sin which dwells in me, Stendhal says the argument is one of acquittal of the ego, not of utter contrition.
0: Paul has a role uh, that's quite sophistry, don't you think? And, and don't you think it's kind of interesting that Paul, when he talks about how he defines the gospel in First Corinthians chapter 15, he says, you know, the thing, you know, what, I, what was of first importance I passed on to you, you know, that uh, Christ died for our sins. I wonder if he thought he was a sinner. How about Philippians 3, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but the righteousness that is by faith. Stendhal here seems to be suppressing uh, very key passages, and then the ones that contradict him, he's uh, interpreting them away from him.
1: Interesting. He says, I'm not doing it. Why should I be? I don't have a guilt any bad because I'm not doing it. It's not I that's doing it. It's not the ego. And so Stendhal's conclusion should now be obvious. Quote, we should venture to suggest that the West for centuries has wrongly surmised that the biblical writers were grappling with problems which no doubt are ours, but which never entered their consciences. And so, as we move on, this is the bridge to the next section, and we'll quit here. Sendel's argument article, quote, Like a cloud no bigger than a man's hand, he promise of the coming storm, and that storm was the publication of Paul on Palestinian Judaism in 1977. So that is where Christopher Sendel takes us, and that's perfect because we've just hit our time limit, and uh, we have time for questions. If you want to ask a question, come to the microphone.
0: Now you'll notice he's not really offering a rebuttal at this point. You'll have to stay tuned for future installments of Fighting for the Faith to uh, get the rebuttal.
1: And state it, please. To me that this new perspective, far from taking issue with Rome, actually seems to be
3: defending her doctrines. Uh,
1: a couple things in response to that. One is, as I mentioned last time, I thought new perspective would be a boon to Catholic apologists like Pat Madrid and others. But you hardly find them making any mention of new perspective. And the reason is, new perspective has a different agenda um, than the Catholic apologists have. Um, New Perspective is saying that the whole Augustinian reading of sin and grace, guilt and merit, uh, is flawed at at the outset. And there are certain branches of conservative Catholicism that that would land on as hard as it would on Protestantism. Why would you have purgatory? Why would you have uh, ways of accruing merit if the whole New Testament had nothing to do with merit? So New Perspective lands on Trent also. So those old guard Catholic apologists like Madrid and St. Genis and others aren't going to find New Perspective particularly helpful because it's attacking the whole guilt and merit scheme, which they have as well as Protestants do.
0: Which kind of begs the question, who cares about purgatory? Don't you think uh, that uh, those people who are sent to hell... Are going to uh, you know, think, man, I'm bummed that I wasn't individually saved? <clears throat> we continue.
1: We just had different answers. We think the merit has come from Christ received through faith. They think the merit comes through uh, infused informed faith, infused righteousness informed faith that uh, actually transforms us from sinner into saints so that we produce works that actually merit salvation or merit reward the condign congruent merit. So a New Perspective lands on that particular side of Roman Catholicism. Where you see New Perspective catch in Rome is in the ecumenical movement because those uh, in Rome who want to see reunion, especially the Church of England or the Orthodox, uh, will find in, in Stendhal, for example, hey, the problem is the way we're reading Paul. If we just get this, this sin and, and merit language out it would be much easier to make peace with the East because then we have the doxology and mystical things in common with them. So a new perspective doesn't serve that particular end. Given the way that the, the new perspective kind of does away with justification in the traditional sense, um, from that point of view, why is it necessary for Christ to die? Okay, it's an interesting question. Why is it necessary for Christ to die? One of the things you're going to find... Difficult about new perspective especially N.T. Wright is N.T. Wright answering that question. He will talk about Christ's victory over the powers. And I think the question that our divines would have put to him I know that Warfield would have put to him it's the same question put to Finney. You know, Isn't it just better to take Christ out of it all together? Your, your system's cleaner really without because you have to explain the cross passages and they kind of get in the way of your system. So, I think yep. that the place where Wright has the most difficult time is explaining to Christians what the cross means. I think you're exactly right. I think that's the one place where Wright's system, it sounds very good in his reworking of justification because Christians like the idea of covenant. They like the idea of finding a place for works that, 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 you know, fit in this. They like the idea of getting rid of this hard and fast Protestant scholastic categories. But, what do you do with a cross? We'll see some language in Sanders that is kind of problematic in that regard also. So it's a very insightful question. Yes, sir. Okay.
3: Um, Come to the good. mic so we can hear you.
1: Okay. we get you on tape. Um,
3: your lecture has made it sound like uh, each of these guys, stendel Sanders, uh, Dunn and Wright, they build on one another. Yes. And they represent a kind of unified consensus. Um, how, what, however, is, is that the actual case? Don't right and done disagree with one another, and they're considered evangelicals, and wouldn't they disagree even more with, say, Stendhal?
1: Yeah, you, that's exactly right. It's They're not a unified consensus, and I hope I didn't convey that because this is a trajectory, and that's why I called the series from the beginning New Perspectives on Paul. Because In my first lecture, I made the point that there are manifold differences between each of these particular writers. Uh, much more affinity between uh, Sanders and Dunn on certain things, but Dunn basically takes Sanders kind of incomplete understanding of Paul and tweaks it. And then Wright builds on Dunn. So there's a, instead of seeing this as a, as a unified uh, position, there's a definite trajectory from Sanders, uh, from Stendhal to Sanders to Dunn to Wright. And there's a that's what that's at least what Wright and Dunn both say um, director Come to the mic. Come to the mic. Okay.
3: Would, would the view, would Dunn Dun and Wright um, are considered evangelicals or within the evangelical camp? Um, Shouldn't be. I, I would find it hard to believe they would deny the kind of classical view of the atonement that Christ died for our sins. Um, as this is tending to suggest,
1: you will find them affirming all of those things and redefining those in such a way that they do deny the essence of the historic Protestant gospel—that Christ's death is actually paying for sin. You'll find people like um, you'll find Dunn sounding very much like C. H. Dodd. The cross is an exemplar. You have N.T. Wright speaking of the cross as a triumph over the forces of uh, paganism, showing the power of God, the love of God. But that's so nebulous as to be meaningless. And so the cross, as Paul says, is emptied of its power. And so they can't be evangelicals in the historic sense at all.
3: Um, Is one, in the new perspective, is one saved by keeping all the law? I mean, can someone keep the law perfectly? And if that's the case, how do they deal with, you know, where Jesus talks about adultery and, you know, killing your brother in your thoughts? How do they deal with those kinds of things? Your question
1: presupposes that you've misunderstood Paul because you're asking about salvation. Paul's not talking about that. I'm giving you the new perspective answer. Read your first question again.
3: Um, (laughs) About... Um, we well, said earlier on that the, with um, the covenantal nomism that they stay in by obedience. I mean, how, how obedient does someone have to be to stand in the judgment? You tell
1: me. It's nebulous. It's undefined. As, as Wright says in one place, you know, when he, he works through Romans chapter 2, the hearers of the law will suffer loss on the, the day of final judgment because it's the doers of the law who are justified. So you, 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 your question presupposes your Lutheran that are saying, oh, Paul, you've got to get rid of that. Because this justification is about wearing the badge of faith and being numbered among the, the believers. It's not about how many works you do or how many works you don't do. Their answer to that question is entirely different than the answer we would be apt to give. That's what I want you all to see. They would say the question is based on Luther's understanding of Paul. Now, I think you're exactly right. I think the first question that pops into my mind is the same question you were asking and the same question Michael was asking. What's the cross in this? What's it do? What shows us the victory of God over the forces of paganism? Yeah, and your point, what does it do? And when you press them on that, well, you're reading this as a modern Western. You're concerned with your own guilt. You're concerned with works and merit. Paul isn't concerned with that. So that's that's where I'm pressing you to see this is a completely reworking of the whole Pauline understanding of the Gospel. And so, Paul, I would say, if you're in that system, you probably would be... You're, you're, Council would probably be become a doer of the law, not a hearer only. So you have the badge of faith; you're in the church. Now, live like it, and don't get bogged down in the particulars. That's legalism.
3: Okay. That being said, <laughs> um, I, I, what I want to know is then. Is this sort of a postmodern perspective on on looking at the Pauline theology, and then if there's no common uh, predicament to man that it's dynamic rather than than static, then then how do they view original sin or Adam and and all of that kind of thing, and then what about other religions that um, you know? Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, is that, is it okay for them then? If the Jews, that's okay for them and Christian, Christianity is okay for us?
1: Yep. Very interesting so. questions. First question is, um, I think in, in some way, some of the New Perspective Writers, certainly M.T. Wright, is critical of much of postmodernism. It's relativism, it's immorality and so on. Um, and yet I think there's a real problem... When you start to articulate the victory of Christ over the powers, over the forces of the age, there's a problem making that theological. It's going to go to ethics, which is why, why for example, the New Perspective writers are now discussing in great detail what they call Paul and empire. As I mentioned last time, you know, N.T. Wright just a year ago came out in a speech against the United States and the war in Iraq saying that the United States and its behavior in Iraq manifests all the signs of the principalities and powers that Paul is calling down fire on. So it goes to, to world events, it goes to, to symptomatic things, it goes to politics, not to any kind of individual question of how am I right before a holy God? Because that's the wrong question. It just evades that whole discussion. So in terms of self-conscious being postmodern, no. In terms of identifying uh, the question and uh, the problems of the age, it's gonna go to politics, and Darfur and world starvation and global it's going to go green you can just bet on it all that stuff is it's just right around the corner if it hasn't already it will because if there's no need for a cross and relationship to personal sin then ethics is the only place it can go and that's where all of these movements eventually go and they all collapse on the rocks there as far as Adam that's a fine Christian myth Jewish myth original sin yeah.
3: My question really isn't theological per se, but um, more sociological, historical. Wondering if he's taken criticism sociologically or historically, because it seems he could be guilty, Stendhal being. I don't know so much about Sanders and the rest, but um, having looked at some of those longer passages, he seems he could be guilty equally of anachronistic fallacies that he's accusing traditional Protestants of and if Luther's taken such a beating what do the historians say to him what do the sociologists say to him about the fact that the Eastern Orthodoxy fled from traditional Christianity 500 years before Luther and the Crusades were occurring 400 years before Luther.
1: Yeah, the, the, There were it, radical divisions that... I think you've answered your own question. I think those are all issues that Sindel would be very difficult. I uh, would have a very difficult time dealing with and As I said, the problem that a lot of modern new perspective theologians have is the Luther they're reacting against is the Luther they've received through Boltmann. And one of the places where Wright and Dunn and Sanders have been pressed by church historians, conservative and liberal, is in their misunderstanding and misrepresentation of Luther. Stendhal especially gets Luther wrong. Um, Carl Truman has a great essay online. Uh, Luther, the man sinned against, the man more sinned against. And Truman answers that that question. You go through Luther and look at Luther on Romans chapter 7. Luther's not talking about his individual situation. He's talking about the situation of a fallen race. And speaking very corporately there. So, I think A. Stendhal utterly misrepresents Luther. I think it's really clear in some of the questions that Conservatives have put the to, to done and, and right about Luther and Calvin. I think their knowledge of the Reformed tradition is is greatly lacking, and um, they've been pressed on that relatively hard of late. And Stendhal, I think you're right, I mean, orthodoxy has lots of problems, and that Christians in the West who are reacting against. Um, I do think let's give Stendhal one little bit of slack and say there is a preoccupation with self in the West. A lot of that's a result of sin. Um, it's important that we realize the corporate aspects of Christianity and the corporate aspects of human sin. Agreed. But um, at the end of the day, you know, Stendhal is trying to get Luther to say something Luther didn't said, didn't say and trying to end up with a situation in which the moderns get it and the ancients didn't. And that is exactly the point you're trying to make, I think. The fallacy of anachronism where you're trying to read the modern issue back into the ancients and appropriate them for yourself when they weren't dealing with the question Stendhal's asking. So I I think you have it. Anything else? Since it's your computer, you get to ask That's right. Not <laughs> all the so questions much a question. you
4: want. I, I, just just uh, since nobody wanted to ask, I just wanted to uh, make a comment that I find ironic that Boltman was uh, reacting to the German scene, which, in his view, and correctly, I believe, in many ways, transformed Christianity uh, as an expression of Kant in which it's just a set of morals. Yeah, ethics. And ethics. And Boltman is wanting even though denying incarnation, deity, resurrection, he wants to say Christianity is not about a set of principles or morals. It's about uh, recognizing that you have no claim upon God, that you have to submit yourself to God and to believe in him. So in Boltman's mind, he is being very conservative in resurrecting true Christianity. And these guys are coming and saying, this is not Christianity. We need to be more conservative than that. So yeah. they're trying to outdo themselves in what, in being conservative, and they're going to different directions and crashing and burning, it's just ironic. Yeah.
1: What was Luther's line? The drunk guy gets on the tries to get on the horse, and he overcompensates and flips over on the other side. That, that's a lot of what we see going on here. So, all right. Next time, we will take a look at E.P. Sanders. And we'll talk about Second Temple Judaism, uh, seen through the lens of Sanders. And we'll move to the next phase of our study and ask the question, um, play on words based on uh, the topic, Uh, Pelagian Jews. Were the Jews into works righteousness or were they in fact uh, a religion of sovereign grace? So we'll meet again uh, next time. Let's close in a word of prayer.
0: All right, we're going to stop there. So stay tuned. We have a lot more to cover here. And I think uh, Dr. Riddlebarger did a fine job of explaining how this is a reaction against a uh, basically a a false understanding of Luther. And very, very dangerous, dangerous, dangerous teaching. And where does it end up? Moralistic ethics. And the cross, well not sure what the purpose of the cross is except for to stick it to the caesar man or or the way you know mclaren puts it to show you know to show the world the uh the basically the evils of the imperial suicide machine show it so that they would defect from it whatever that means <laughs> all right we are rapidly approaching another edition of fighting for the faith and i need to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio And right now we're looking for a thousand of our listeners to join our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. And when you do so, you have access into... Our secret pirate cove. Yeah, that's right. We have a pirate cove, uh, which has a grow. It's basically a growing treasure trove, an anthology of some really great theological works uh, that are designed to help you go deeper in your understanding of the Christian faith. Get you out of the 21st century in a lot of ways and uh, get you uh, get you exposed to the greater breadth and depth of uh, Christian doctrine and theology and thinking. And uh you can uh you know to have access to this, you uh join our crew, you go to fightingforthefaith.com and click on the join our crew button and it's it's a mere $6.95 a month and uh, we've already I've already announced at the uh, at the cove. If you are if you are a crew member and you go to the cove, I've announced my first webinar and uh that's going to be Saturday, November 7th. Saturday, November 7th at noon eastern it's going to go about an hour hour and a half and i'm going to be talking about the heidelberg disputation and with tie-ins to uh, luther's uh treatise on christian liberties you definitely don't want to miss that and at no extra cost uh to those in the cove so uh Again, uh, to join FightingForTheFaith.com, click on Join Our Crew. And, of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can do so uh, by clicking our Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. We'd love to get your feedback. Um, you can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there again, pirate Christian. Until Monday, next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen.